Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Wolverine through his many weekly titles, week after week, over and over again. It's been so much Wolverine, but it's been a lot of fun. I am, of course, Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today is a Wolverine Wednesday like none other, as we say goodbye to 10 Lives of Wolverine, X Deaths of Wolverine, Life of Wolverine, and say hello to Wolverine Patch Number 1, and prepare to clean the slate for the destinies of X era. And kicking things off, we are saying goodbye to Life of Wolverine with Chapter 10, A Matter of Trust. And I just want to thank the incredible creative team of Jim Zub, Ramon Box, Hava Tartaglia, and VCs Joe Sabino for delivering what has been one of the best Marvel Infinity comics they have managed to put out this entire time. The book has been a beautiful tribute to the character, and I'd made a number of comments about eras I hoped we saw and didn't and man this last issue packed him in i love seeing logan among nature in that opening image it's so great to see it at the top i don't even have to scroll at all to see it logan among the wolves is a very important image for me because logan is so about his connection to nature there really is a special communion so i appreciate seeing it there and speaking of special communions wolverine and magneto and the adamantium scene man so magneto spends more time as just a floating head than anybody and that Magneto pulling Wolverine adamantium scene. You know, the legend is that Peter David said it as a joke at an X-Men retreat and everybody ran with it. I kind of still don't know what I think about it. You know, beyond the joke that there's like only three ferrous metals and I don't think adamantium would be the fourth, (laughs) I feel just like it was certainly a moment that we decided that Magneto could come back from, I guess. And it's so fitting that this episode does see us talk about Larry Hama and Larry Hammer's amazing time on Wolverine in the pages of Patch because he is responsible for so many of the stories set in this time and he did such a beautiful diligent amount of work shaping the character through what were truly tribulations not just for Wolverine but sort of for Marvel as an entity and overall as storytellers it's something that's hard not to consider when you think about the 90s Marvel was in a really complicated place because their creative operations were so limited by the the complexities of their business operations and financial difficulties. So even when we talk about X-Men in the 90s, and we do have to put that caveat on, it was a weird era for storytelling, sort of across the board. Guys like Larry Hama were working so hard against such an unstable industry and churned out so many classic stories. And we get to the kind of post Larry Hama years and we've got the Wolverine is the horseman and death and I got to give it to Ramon Box this is just about the best this costume has ever looked it's kind of a silly costume at times he looks a little bit like he's on his way to LARP somewhere but Ramon Box makes it look like he's on his way to fuck shit up 
And I think one of the things that works so well about Jim Zub's script here is Jim Zub seems to know when to pull back on over-describing any situation because some of the situations are kind of embarrassing, kind of like laughy. And like, but that's, I think, kind of the art of anything. If you say it as Wolverine, feral, covered in only the bits of the machinery that he couldn't shake off runs through the night into the woods, you know, it sounds like Wolverine is escaping the Weapon X facility with only his, you know, very body intact. But if you describe it as, so like Logan hops on out of this building after he like falls down in a big metal diaper, like it kind of loses some of the power. So one of the things that Jim Zub really sought to do was, it, to me, it seems really enhance the moments that could use a little bit more powerful prose and shied away where it really didn't need it. The jump directly to Agent of Hydra is definitely a pretty significant amount of time. You're sort of skipping over roughly four or five years that have some significant consequence. Assault on Weapons Plus is in that time, as well as a host of beloved runs for Wolverine. So it does feel perhaps a little bit like they're missing, but Marvel loves to operate via tentpole, and that's something that I've really learned from this miniseries event. Marvel really likes to look at characters by a sellable era, and I wonder if that has to do with the way omnibus printing works, or maybe if it's something I just don't see about the way a majority of fans interact with storytelling but this jump directly from apocalypse death logan to agent of hydra logan does feel stark especially because the malar wolverine is like wolverine 20 to 31 and 32 i think and then like it rolls directly into this house of m wolverine where he immediately remembers and then suddenly we're in the krakoan era and that's also kind of a shock because the Jason Aaron years and Wolverine and the X-Men. That's a really celebrated period. I wonder if maybe they didn't want to muddy the waters with talking about maybe the breakup with Scott and the separation of the teams. But, and you know, I mean, you know, like ethical breakup and conceptual breakup of what the X-Men are meant to be. Uh, not even being humorous about the fact that there's, you know, very clearly always been some tension between them. But it does feel like a lot of things just there weren't room for them. And I think it's even because they're still in recent cultural memory it's almost hard to believe that wolverine enemy of the state is like 15 plus years old at this point which just feels like impossible right like that feels too long ago but it's really got to be what it is so i find this quick jump to showing a lot of the young women that logan has been a mentor to and then that's a great fucking group shot of x-force i like that quentin choir actually looks kind of excited to be there you know it's a quick cut through then the incredible women that fill out logan's life and we cut to that unbelievable descending group of logans it's like that exiles stuff where there were all of those Wolverines for that arc that Bedard did. I think it was like 85, 86 on his original Exiles run right before he left when Claremont took over and it became like a Psylocke book for a hot minute. You know, and then there's there's this incredible ending where Jean says, I'm honored you shared so much with me. Once this journey is done, I'll wipe these memories from my mind. And he says, no, Jeannie, you're going to keep them, keep them safe. I trust you with them more than I trust myself. And I thought that this short exchange was more definitive of Logan and Jean's relationship than some dozen 
dozens of comics have been in the last couple of years, and that's not about any specific writer, but I think it's more about finding opportunities where Logan has a chance to show something like this. There's a kind subtlety to this, no, just keep what we've shared, right? That's what's fascinating, because it's Logan has a chance to, you know, Gene probably didn't even think about it this way, because Gene is, she's my favorite X-Men, but like, you know, super selfish all the time. Gene is immediately making it about herself. I'll wipe these memories from me. And so she wouldn't even see it this way, probably. But she's immediately saying, yeah, I'll do to myself what's been done to you. I'll fracture my own mind for you. And that's not something Logan would ever want for anyone. So not only does Logan have an opportunity to spare someone from what he's been through himself, that Gene had to do this because his mind has been erased so many times, but he has a chance to share it with her. And it's so hard to create these scenarios where Gene and Logan would have an opportunity to share a moment like this because they're both such big stakes players. It's kind of hard to have Gene play a backseat role to anybody when so many people play backseat roles to Gene. It does take kind of a Logan, but then finding a way that this isn't Logan erasing Gene's agency is a really delicate walk, and it's done really well here because Gene is the one with all of the power, and she's actually the narrator and the one through whom all of the story is being told because this story has no active action. It's just sort of recapping things. There's a sense that, you know, a story like this doesn't need to tell me anything new, but Jim Zub and Ramon Box and Hava Tartaglia and Joe Sabino created a story that did tell me a lot of new things by reminding me a lot of stories that not only might I have forgotten, but I might have misunderstood the first time around. This has been a thrilling 10 issues and covering it has really been one of the highlights of my time on X's for Podcast. Wolverine has always been one of my favorite characters and we've done so many specials for the guy and having an opportunity to sit with this, I really hope it gets the kind of presentation that a number of these infinite comics are hopefully getting following the unlimited reprint for X-Men 1 through 4. I think the biggest takeaway from this is there are so many stories that fit directly into places that I know didn't get told in this timeline that like I even just pointed out several this episode and even though those might be some of the most recent I can think of so many things where I'd be like oh I wish they had a chance to tell this it kind of makes me wonder how many of those areas that I said yeah you know there's just not a whole lot here that are maybe areas that I just don't know about and perhaps we'll get a life of Wolverine 11 through 20 or season 2 but I would not just love a life of Wolverine I would love a life of a number of characters. This was an incredible deep dive from creators who not only loved the character on a clear enjoyment factor kind of level, but took the time to delve into the visual understanding, the color chemistry and composition, the perspective on social commentary. You know, this creative team took what could have been kind of a blow-off assignment. If not to me. I, I think Infinity Comics, I've gone out of my way to make Infinity Comics like one of the top things we cover on this fucking show, right? But this team took what a lot of people might have felt is a blow-off assignment and turned it into a masterwork statement on a character that can always stand to have great work done. And I'm really grateful. I give the whole 10 issues a solid, like, A, really, if not better. I hesitate to give anything an A+, because 
you know, how do you then exceed that? But if something came close to really getting like a 100 out of 100 from me, I think it would have to be Life of Wolverine 1 through 10. It really speaks to why I love Wolverine and what I love about his complex narrative. But on to another incredible story about Wolverine. We have our second coverage of X-Deaths of Wolverine. And I love the people in this room. I love this coverage. This is so much fun. And we hope you guys enjoy. And don't forget, if you guys enjoy, you might want to stick around to hear a little bit more on X-Deaths from yours truly, followed by coverage of Wolverine patch number one, written by Larry Hama, a guy whose name came up in this previous segment. Don't forget, you might even want to follow us over on Twitter at X is for podcast. Enjoy this next segment, you guys. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many swan songs of Moira McTaggart week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me fighting off what I thought was a cold, but has turned out to be a techno-organic virus on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. I am Broadway. I had a recent reminder that we should all be getting tested regularly, so please go do that, and then follow me on Twitter at BWay3RD. Que hola, mi gente. Arturo, you know, you can already find me at uh, Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hey guys, it's Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. And we hope you survived the experience, much like my love for the Wolverine family finally having a moment together. And that means we must be talking about X Deaths number five, The End of the Line, written by Ben Percy, art by Federico Vicentini, colors by Di Halima, letters and design by VCs Corey Pettit, and design by Tom Muller. It's been a long road, but it's crazy. It's only actually been two months. This has not been going on this long. And in some ways, it has felt very fast paced, and in other ways, it has felt like it has gone on forever. I would definitely agree with that. Really? Only two months? Yeah. The last week of January for X Lives number one, and then it's the last week for X Deaths number five. You know, all the like time travel shenanigans that have been involved in this series are like kind of capture the vibe of shutting off the rest of the line so that like this has been a weird little rip through time. And I think that's part of what has made it both in some ways feel really long because there were parts of this story in particular that felt very extended but between the sort of deep dives that we would do into moments of Logan's history and the fact that we had a lot of cancellations a lot of books stopping a lot of pauses the fact that there was not as much content coming out around this really meant that this was more than just kind of a tent pole it was really the axis upon which everything hinged and there at this time was not much else the lack of other content coming out was I think a bit disorienting. It was the first time in a while that we've had that maybe since sort of Ten of Swords. I think that has definitely made the reception of Ten Lives and X Deaths a little wonky because we are in this kind of holding pattern. But I think upon reflection and reading these sort of in in bulk, it will be received a bit better. I think you're right insofar as we will be able to take more out of this book in hindsight 
having gone through close to three years of really steady X content. And even Ten of Swords is a great example because everything was being released at the time. And even though all of it was based around the Ten of Swords event, there was still a lot of stuff happening that was relevant to whatever had been going on the book otherwise. And it wasn't as though the line just completely stopped telling any other stories besides the X of Swords story, the X of sword story got woven into what everybody else was doing this a moment in time froze and we did basically this one thing with a few other auxiliary stories it's like secret x-men but you know there were weeks when this was really the only thing that came out and it was sometimes tough to stomach after you know eating all of these amazing stories for three years ten of swords had so much going on it almost too much and like now you look back and it's like okay there was a whole lot going on and it also served the purpose of setting this stuff up this one i feel was like almost too singularly focused like the whole the whole concept of wolverine being you know the last surviving x-men and like you know the center of this whole thing i'm ready for a change of pace you know like i feel like the story is done x deaths and 10 lives has this i don't want to say misdirect i think it's just like the way in which some of these things get processed through like the corporate machine but it came off off like this like epic event which in a lot of ways it was but it was an epic story right like two kind of big stories but specifically with x lives it it's digested weirdly because i think people wanted like oh this is going to be you know wolverine like and x-force having it out with mikhail and the mutants of russia and all this other stuff that like isn't exactly what is happening it's more of a flashpoint than the final you know the final battle of it all and i think that in a few months from now maybe a year out we're gonna look back at the same way we looked back at ten of swords and realize that all of these things were being sort of set up even down to planet-sized x-men is like hinted at in ten of swords i would absolutely agree while ten of swords felt truly like an event to me x lives and uh, ten deaths or whichever one is which um felt more like a transition where we're seeing where the events of Inferno kind of happen and the fallout from that from Moira and then seeing a little bit more of Wolverine and getting some character development while also reevaluating his past and not necessarily rewriting the past but reevaluating it in a way where we see Wolverine's characterization and how far he's come and and having him, I guess, reevaluate his own past and what he thinks of it has been really interesting. But it's kind of had more of a transition feel than an event type of feel. And it leaves me wanting a little bit. And while I do want to see more and see more what's going to happen, I don't like it leaving me wanting. I want some finality. It does come immediately off of Inferno, which is this huge bookend. And we know going into this that what happens after is going to be destiny of x which with inferno bringing destiny back that name has so much more weight than 
it might have at any other point. So there are these huge things on either side of this event that you are just like you either massively were engaged with or are massively looking forward to. So this event either has to step it up to an enormous degree or no matter what it does, no matter how good it is, there's going to be a certain degree to which, yes, this is just the scaffolding and the cabling that gets us from one point to the other. And I definitely don't think it stepped it up. The only thing that really stepped it up in the way that I was thinking of was the Moira story. It wasn't necessarily what I might have wanted for Moira, but we can start to get into that. I just think as far as the Logan stuff goes, a lot of content, I don't know if any of it elevated the character for me in a way that I'll be looking back on this forever going, man, I thought of Logan completely differently from this point on. When Percy writes Logan, he gets this like tunnel vision and kind of, even with like the best of intentions, right? Like I love that Sage had a moment. There were some moments like that, but even Sage's big badass moment of taking the sword and hacking the Omega Wolverine or whatever really turned into her tossing the sword to Logan so he could finish it. Like that would have been a nice little just change of perception, right? Even Jean and, and Professor X, it literally could have been two of the cuckoo for as much as they did. I mean, Jean maybe had a little more play, but it just feels like a missed opportunity to give other people active roles. Like I'm still salty that Rachel had nothing to do with this. It does leave you slightly like flat and does not take the story where it needs to go. I will say it does a good job, especially at the end. Not that I have like some, you know, revolutionary understanding of Logan now, but it does feel like his character is more rounded in his family, both like complexly biological and complexly chosen. Like especially with the family coming together in X-Deaths number five, as well as Xavier and Jean helping to like pull him back when Omega Red like dumps his psyche. Those were moments where it's like, ah, like his character is no longer about just being good at stabbing in the way that Beast characterizes him as, but instead is somebody who's grounded in protecting his family. I do wish when Beast does sort of talk about him being like a a savage, I wish that there was, it's contrasted, you know, by the scene with him and his family, but I do wish that there was a moment of like Sage kind of checking him being like, no, that's not what he is. Or Wolverine being like, hey, I have super sensitive hearing. I can hear you. (laughs) Like I can hear you. And after all I've done to fix the problems that you've created, I'm not taking that from you. Right. Um, I do think there are some interesting things seated between the kind of Beast Mikhail story. And I do think this these events tie into what has been done by Percy. There was something to me that on the one hand was very moving about the self-hating mutant who wants to cure everybody and the queer allegories that you get from that. Mm-hmm. It was something that really made me engage with the character of Moira, not in a, an especially positive way, but it, I appreciated the poetry of it. There was something very dramatic about it. It made me react with a lot of emotion, but it also made me kind of go well then what the fuck was the point of all this like why i mean did you just round everybody up onto an island so you could depower the children i don't really understand and this whole the cancer theory at the very least gives us a consistent she actually did want to be there even something like why she didn't want destiny back can 
kind of come back into play more with it's just her own personal thing and she's kind of lying about the precognitive thing because she just hates destiny but it gives her having cancer and the council voting on whether or not to kill her as a turning point and a motivation for her to become as she does an ex's death gives something where the hatred that she seems to have an ex deaths and the betrayal that she feels would actually make sense to me it's very tough for me to go from that last issue of inferno to the last issue of ex deaths i don't understand what's going on in moira's head i don't understand why she feels so betrayed and how she can say this is her dream too when her dream is really to depower mutant children so i feel like one i think one thing that needs to be sorted out and i i'm hoping that's coming in either wolverine or x-force is the like the origins of the cancer of it all and whether that's related to her like how how did that how does that map onto when she has a mutation versus when she doesn't or yeah. like has she had it just from being in the no place and she just didn't know etc etc i think that like would do wonders like, i i buy into moira's turn i just finished doing a, a reread of hoxpock and you know you see at the end that she's like i need to take a step back i'm doing too much etc etc and then in her mind she's like leaving it to charles and magneto they're fucking up all over the place she's like okay wait how did you know where i was and then it's like there's this building of, of feelings of deception right that they were all on one side and the minute she let them kind of do their thing and wasn't the puppeteer they're not only fucking up but then also like tracking her and i feel like there's this sense and it's built over inferno that like she's annoyed and also now dubious and it's like are they fucking up or are they like doing something else and it's like i am the hero of mutant kind they have betrayed me look at what they've done they must be tracking me with this arm they must be doing all these things here comes mystique to blow me up and i'm not having it and i i get that i don't think it's perfect but i do get the idea i was fully gonna say something similar that she has main character syndrome because i've never been the biggest fan of moira especially with this whole like mutant thing because she has been so anti-mutant and i get that she has a lot of like self-loathing and mutant loathing from her own experience and i do tend to agree that it's like eric and charles are they are fuck-ups like it's not (laughs) to me that's not a question they they really don't know what they're doing half the time and when they do know what they're doing they can't pull it off and so i would definitely agree that moira is very upset with them and she doesn't really have anyone on her side she doesn't have anyone that can share her experiences she doesn't really have anyone that sympathizes with her or understands what she's going through she is seen by destiny by charles and xavier as a mean to an end versus an actual person or a human to me throughout the entire like recent x stuff it's been more about using her than helping her and i would get pissed off too if that was my situation so i kind of understand a little bit where she's coming from even if i don't like her and so seeing her do all this makes some twisted sort of sense to me i also feel like i mean one of the 
the things Hickman said in an interview like he was asked like has she ever been happy since her first life and he was like not really and like when you think about it it's like yeah like her her shit is miserable and the one time she tried to quote unquote fix things destiny came and burned her alive so I feel like she never really got over misery of living and dying over and over again um, there was a meme on Twitter of some child just annoyed at Disneyland and they were like this is Moira at her ninth third birthday party like can you imagine like it's miserable and the one time you tried to quote unquote fix things to like absolve or like to save yourself from your suffering you get like burned alive like I feel like I don't know I don't know if I would ever get over that and the tragedy of it all and I think that's what I like is that Moira's story is kind of a is kind of Greek tragedy it has a kind of Oedipus making your own bed accidentally you know Achilles sort of setting yourself up for failure element to it but the tragedy is that she didn't really listen to destiny it's funny because she is both a cassandra coming in and telling everybody you know the sky is falling the world's going to end and she has destiny doing that for her destiny coming in and telling her this is what's actually going on this is how you fix it this is what you need to do and nobody's listening to her and she is not listening to anybody so you know it's you can see how the situation is sort of doomed no matter what it's the levels of like internalized misogyny necessary for moira to never have approached emma in one of her previous lives like she thought chuck eric apocalypse everyone else had a possible solution that's part of the tough sell of this whole thing is and it's funny because evelyn said you know she has main character syndrome i think that is exactly why she was kind of held apart and away from the rest of mutant kind i am happy with where we've landed with her i just think there could have been more gratifying ways to get there and now i'm totally okay with putting moira back up on the shelf not really seeing her for a hot minute you know and and letting her kind of creep in the background I mean, I think unfortunately we've already seen her in solicits or like preview pages. Oh yeah, I, I have. Yeah, well, yeah, like possibly for Judgment Day, and and that aside, I'm I'm with you, Arturo, but I am interested in what looked to be Moira like philandering and canoodling with Druig from the Eternals, but I don't think that she's going to be the it girl for a little bit, which I'm okay with. I want to eventually, in like a couple of months, like find out that Moira's been up to X, Y, and Z and get like a little view into what's going on with her, but not get consistent stories about her. I'm kind of looking forward to Moira's final form as like Mother Mole, but I'm in no rush. I think all of this has at the very least teed us up for a cool status quo. Like we've got a big bad out there now, again, another one. It feels big. It's not like Cordyceps Jones and, and some of these new characters are all really cool, but in this world where we have created amnesty for, for all villains and we've seen some truly like redemptive arcs for some we've seen some others you know that are pretty much irredeemable but useful like sinister we've seen different flavors of this moira you know has all of these lives and i do think there's an interesting parallel that i wish was played up more about the way that logan also has all of these lives it's because he's always surviving versus like her who's always like dying and coming back they're kind of like opposite sides of the same coin logan is 
constantly watching everyone he loved die. And I thought that was really fascinating that like even through all of that, he still comes back to save them all. Whereas like Moira's like, well, maybe you guys are all awful and I'm the hero. He's like, I don't want to see your misery. And that data page about all of the death that Omega Wolverine experiences and sees is like really heartbreaking. On Twitter, I compared it to when he attempts to kill Saturnine and she shows him what the future holds and like how he has to watch all of all of his friends and loved ones die until the very end where it's just him and I believe that's Marauders maybe 15 or 16 and is written by Duggan and Percy that I appreciate as like a connective moment of like you know his brashness costing everyone and now it's his his skills and his intellect combined with Forge's skills going back and saving everyone I mean with Moira I again I'm just agreeing with everyone today <laughs> because yeah she really does have a very high opinion of herself which I think is one of the reasons I don't like her but she very much is the oh the the meme with Skinner from the Simpsons where it's like are the children right no everyone else is wrong kind of thing right and she's just the epitome of that meme I will say the one one of the things I really loved was the final flashback to the moment with Charles in the park. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that mm-hmm. as a recurring motif throughout the past three years and this sort of capstone of just like the moment and then you can see it's a little, there's something wrong with the birds and then you get to her just gaping torso wound and she just says, fuck you, Charles. Like that that as like a an end of the sentence and just like a, this is done now. We're not doing this again. It's all been tainted. I think is kind of whether you're happy with how the whole Moira thing has gone down, whether you, you know, like the writing, but now hate Moira as a, as a villain. I think the way that that wrapped up this story for her, for me was satisfying in understanding how to view her going forward. I agree. And I do think it's a, I mean, yeah, it's funny in a lot of ways and it's funny in part because again, as with every time she sees him in Hoxpock, he looks completely content and or oblivious. He's just a dumb kid. <laughs> yeah, and he, like, and here she comes, and she has experienced all of these things. She's like, fuck you, dude. And he's like, oh, what? There is a degree to which, regardless of whatever plan she had or beliefs she had, she did say, like, okay, you guys told me to trust you. I'll do it. And, like, for her, she is comparatively the adult in the room. And they are these idiot children. She's she's decades older than them. She's hundreds of years older than them. And she looks at them and she's just like, oh, fuck, I let the kids do it again. And they completely screwed up. And it's a funny contrast, at least to me, with like what's happened between like Sink and Scott and Kane, where like they have respect for his years of knowledge and they want to help him hone all those skills and grow. And like Charles and Eric are like, no, you need to like stay in the basement. And I know I speak for a lot of people starving for Sage content. And like in a recent interview, Percy was like, yeah, stay tuned. You know, Sage is going to get a moment. And I pray to God he's talking about something bigger than this. Because like, yes, she was, she was like, you know, pivotal there in, in this final issue. But like, I need about 10 times more of this is what I'm asking for when I'm saying I'm craving some Sage content. I agree that this was a missed opportunity, especially because Wolverine's Wolverine. He's always going to save the day. Like, it's not as though he's not going to get another chance to have cut him 
out of the situation at the end entirely and just had Sage been the one with the sword who finished it would have been such a good story beat. It would have just kind of turned things on its head. It wouldn't have like taken away from the climax in any way because again, Wolverine's such a huge character. He can miss like two dozen climaxes in a row and he's still going to have, you know, 10 more in the next few comics that show up. The one thing I'm hoping with Sage is that all of this background time is going to lead to a moment in which she is like, I've been there the whole time. Like, and you'll be able to point to it and be like, yeah, she totally was. And she can be like, I'm so sick, like Moira, of watching you guys fuck up. And my computer brain has calculated that I am now the boss. Yeah, I definitely feel like that's where this is headed. I mean, even the fact that she was the one giving Beast instructions because she saw a clearer picture. I don't believe that this is what Percy was referring to. I think this is like a moment of of the beginning of the shift for Sage, but it should not be the, the apex of that. Well, you know, she's got the receipt. If anybody does, it's Sage, you know? Yeah. And and ultimately, yeah, I mean, the trial of Henry McCoy is, is inevitable. I think with Beast, everyone already kind of knows that he's trash, and I'm just waiting for them to do something about it. But then again, they don't really do much about actual problems, so it may never come, at least not when I want it to. I feel like the kooky thing with Beast is, like, he is awful, but he also, and I hate to say this, but he has a point. Like, when he tells Emma, like, you need a bastard, like, that echoes exactly what Mystique said, which is, like, you know, Kurt, when they're first forming X-Force, and I think X-Force 3 or 4, you know, Kurt says we should consider the moral compass of this institution, and Mystique is, like, the only moral compass, the only moral prerogative is nationalism. Like, she's the only one who's like, no, let's just be honest about what we're doing. It's a mutant CIA, and, like, you know, many people have said this, but it's, like, all of, you know, America's great, quote-unquote, great uh, national security leaders and whatnot, magically not in jail, you know, despite all sorts of wrongdoing and and failures and blunders. I I would actually imagine him doing possibly a heel turn into a darker beast who's, like, now driven, like, Moira by, like, a rage over being replaced because he did all the dirty work. I'm ready for for Beast and Sinister to have some some kind of interaction. I feel like they could, it'd be an interesting story to watch them both kind of trying to manipulate each other for, for whatever purpose especially with Sinister already attempting to produce chimeras, like that seems like something that Beast would be very into for security purposes, quote unquote. Yeah, hell, bring Conan's Tamagotchi child into it. Her NFT daughter, oh, yes. <laughs> Despite it not being perfect, I did like it and I liked both stories. I am excited to see the threads be picked up, especially in Immortal X-Men where they're going to have to deal with the fallout of Inferno. So yeah. Yeah, if I've got one request, it's I got two requests. I need a follow-up on Forge, and I want to see Banshee resurrected and, I don't know, have, like, you know, his family, have Black Tom there, have Teresa, have, like, the Generation X kids and and Emma. Like, he deserves. My boy got fridged in the worst way possible. He got Buffalo Billed. And, again, I said this on Twitter, he may not even remember it. Like, he may be Oh, no, he definitely won't remember it. That's definitely between backups. That's horrifying. Yeah. But his, his skin is lying on the like they yeah everybody's gonna be like yeah you got brought back because moira walked in with your skin because they have the gate traffic right like yeah somebody knows that banshee was there well and she left it on the floor (laughs) 
Right. Sorry, she was also alive the whole time and lying to you. We didn't tell you about it. Yeah, I want Black Tom to be the emotional support gay cousin that yeah. I believe he is. Yeah. Um, not I would love that. Yeah, but specifically for Banshee. Like, not just, like, taking care of Banshee's children back in the day, but, like, specifically being like, hey, don't drink. Let's just, like, go sing <laughs> old songs. Well, we got halfway there with one of the most recent issues, the St. Patrick's Day issue of X-Men Unlimited on Marvel. Infinity. They like did agree to go have a drink together. And I'm going to assume that happened before Banshee was skinned. So when he comes back, maybe Black Tom can be like, hey, like there's precedent for this. Come talk with your old friend Black Tom about how your love of your life is actually alive, but she skinned you and wore your skin to come kill everybody. That's just terrifying. Evelyn, last words? It left me wanting and I'm still invested in these characters and the storyline. So I'm going to keep reading and see what they're going to do and how things are going to play out. I love it. Hey everybody, Nico here one more time, and I am so excited to talk about the end of X-Deaths and X-Lives and Life of Wolverine, maybe they're 10s, I don't know, Weapon X, Weapon 10, it's a really complicated tapestry. And one of the major focuses of this miniseries has been adjusting several status quos all at once, and that's why there have been so many minis and they've been so interconnected. So there's sort of three tracks I want to look at. There's Moira, there's Wolverine, and there's the X-Books as a whole. And with Moira, it really comes down to whether or not you believe this was a turn or her plan all along. For me, it's kind of hard to believe that Moira has spent so long working with mutants because there's no other way to defeat them. And it comes down to a question of personal responsibility and how you view the nature of her relationship with Magneto and Professor X. I say they're code names because in a lot of ways, there's a difference between Charles, Eric, and Moira and Professor X, Magneto, and Moira. I remember a long time ago, I worked at a bank and everybody at that bank had like a secret second position. Everybody was also like a teller trainer or a specialty counter or a night deposit artist or whatever. Everybody had like a special secondary title and it was to make everybody feel like they had a potential future in the company, that there was movement and there was something that they were working toward. And I repeated that to a friend I had that also worked in banking and they said to me, you know, one day everybody's going to think that their title means something and you're going to have a lot of people with fake titles fighting with management about their fake power. And I think that's what happened here. Moira, whether she truly believed she was running the board or not, gave Charles and Magneto fake power. She chose to operate from the shadows. They didn't put her there. And once that that system was in place, they believed they were acting of their own actions. They believed they had autonomy and agency in this situation. So when they didn't perform as she was exactly looking for, it led to some serious problems because everybody believed they held the power. Now, of course, they were tracking her. That's horrible. It would be crazy to think that she wasn't also always tracking them, because if she was secretly looking to wipe out all mutant kind, I don't think tracking two dudes that she has a business relationship with when she stays in a secret monitoring the world place is that far out of the scope of what she might do. I'm certainly not saying that I think, you know, she's secret police, but I think that she kind of could be trailing these guys the same way they were trailing her. I don't think that Moira is unreasonable for wanting more power in a relationship 
relationship that she entered into where she feels as though that power is being stripped from her. The problem comes in that whether it's a heel turn or it was her plan all along, Moira goes from, I have spent accumulative thousands of years working with the mutants. It's always been to destroy them. I find that simplicity, that black and white, a little unbecoming of the complexity of the story that we're dealing with. We're talking about a human who ultimately was secretly a mutant who becomes a human again, working toward becoming a robotic singularity. And that doesn't feel like something that should be written so clearly in black and white. Oh, now kill all the mutants. Beyond that, when Moira was first introduced, she cared about kids and she cared about helping Charles. And there was a bigger picture there that a lot of people may feel kind of betrayed by this sudden shift. I know that it's not necessarily the outcome I wanted. When Moira was reintroduced in the pages of Hox Pox, it meant like everything to me. She was a character I'd always loved. So seeing her here as Moira X felt so good. It felt so much of what I'd always wanted to see for her come due in a way that was meaningful. She was changing the course of the X-Men and I didn't maybe love that it involved her being perhaps romantically connected to so many men for no reason. It didn't really need to have that many romantic entanglements but you know when you're talking about the men of the Marvel Universe for so many of them they kind of can't get past their own dick so it makes a lot of sense that she would feel there was no other way to control these men or to get close enough to them. So with all of that said, I think Moira's dramatic descent into the darkness is a complex and nuanced journey that ends at a destination I definitely like. I do appreciate that she became a villain on par with a lot of the men that I specifically just said that she had both Apocalypse, Xavier, Magneto. These are men who have done some of the greatest things for mutant kind and yet committed some of the greatest evils against mutant kind. So Moira behaving in this regard here fits in with a motif of some of the greatest power brokers in the history of the X-Men universe. Guys like Sinister, who, I mean, you know, Sinister has done nothing but bad things for the Marvel Universe, but he did help set up Krakoa in that regard. He's done something quite excellent for the X-Men. So Moira enters that pantheon of, God, you're horrible, but I guess you did one good thing one time, so we don't throw you out, you know, the Charles Xavier rule. Now, after all they've done to her and all she's been through, I would personally like it if Moira McTaggart didn't appear in the pages of the Marvel Universe for quite a while. I know there's preview pages in involving her and there's you know upcoming material that it would be odd if she was missing from as mentioned in the previous segments but I believe Moira McTaggart the woman the character the scientist who was trying to help Xavier cure the legacy virus the mother who took care of rain the woman who revolutionized mutant kind and helped build Krakoa I think that character needs a little bit of a rest and you know on the last pages of X deaths of Wolverine she says that she's become an intelligence and that's pretty fitting she had always been a brilliant mind and she had been a part of the x-men for her intelligence and now she is a part of the intelligence that fights the x-men is it what i wanted no but am i okay with it yeah could the journey have been different sure but this is where we're at and you know that the iconography of birds appeared so much throughout those beautiful flashbacks to the era where moira is telling charles all about their great vision for krakoa and how it could be so beautiful and that now there's these hideous horrifying birds on the tombstone where Moira rests and you know it is fitting that she's buried as Kinross and not McTaggart not just because Joe is an unforgivable piece of shit but because number one she dies 
blonde, so she dies not looking like herself. Number two, she dies so unrecognizable to the character that she began as. And number three, she isn't really the woman she was. So why should she be identified by a name that is in so many ways oppression for her? So, you know, end of the day, I just think Moira tried to play a gambit a little too big, a little too tight against people just as dynamic as her. And that was the mistake. You can't challenge everyone when you've given them power they believe is real. And speaking of power people believe is real, Wolverine's journey throughout this story has been one of oddly little agency for being the main character. It's hard to avoid how much Wolverine played the central role in all of this by title and character name. Like, the eponymous of it, but he didn't really play a whole lot of role by agency. I don't feel like at any point throughout the pages of X Deaths or X Lives or Life of Wolverine, Wolverine made a whole lot of specific choices. Rather, I feel Wolverine played out into roles where different sorts of weapons were necessary. It's one of the situations that's resulted of so many amazing Wolverine characters getting more and more spotlight in the books. It means that now we're facing a universe where Wolverine is no longer the only one that does what he does. What does that lead to? Well, that leads to needing to make sure that there's character development and character growth for those other characters on line with what Wolverine would have received in the past. As a result, there's maybe a little less room for Wolverine to get all of the attention that he's used to from those eras, but he's still getting the same amount of material published. This makes things a little bit complicated because we're seeing a lot of stories where Wolverine can't grow. By defining Wolverine as a weapon, as Beast does, he's making it pretty clear what not just the X-Men themselves, but sort of the bigger picture of the universe see Wolverine as. And it might even be my own fault that I say it this way, but I always talk about who's your Wolverine, what's your version of of Logan. And it feels like for a lot of the X office in the last couple of years, the version of Logan is a tool. He is a weapon to be used in whatever way is necessary, whether he's a gun, a sword, or a claw. They use Logan to soothe out plot situations. And that's also internally, Xavier and Magneto send Logan. But the problem is he isn't just the big gun. They don't only pull him out when things are desperate. They also send him in on the little missions. So he's their first line of defense. He's their last resort. And in doing that, they also overlooked so many people who really should have maybe been in this arc. I'm not saying that I think Magneto could have ended the whole thing in five seconds, but I think Magneto could have certainly helped make things a little simpler. I think having Warlock, you know, the phalanx's connection to mutant kind in a very direct way involved would have made more sense. It was odd that Black Tom and Cypher, characters who help communicate to Krakoa, weren't involved. Because this was a story about Moira McTaggart, who helped birth Krakoa and the ways in which she was endangering the idea of it, the ways in which Mikhail was endangering the ideas of it, and how that island was in jeopardy. And yet Krakoa itself had no real agency in the story. So, you know, by making this about Wolverine, by centering this on that one character again, there was sort of a burden of moving the character forward across these 20 issues. But the entire plot of the 20 issues was reflection. Not even just going into the past, but rather with Omega Wolverine, that's a past for us, future for Logan point in the story, where we kind of have to move in and out of the idea of what's our past versus what's the past. Conversely, talking about the past, a lot of characters were used as plot motion here. Sage did some plot motion, but she had quite a bit of amazing action toward the end of the series. Unfortunately, Banshee was literally used as a scarf 
Earth, so he didn't have a whole lot of agency. Forge got depowered kind of out of nowhere. Valkyrie showed up for a few pages. Mystique died early on. It made me believe that perhaps each one of these was setting up something that's coming later on. That makes me wonder about the X-Lives appearances of characters like Romulus. Is that going to be something, or perhaps the Logan symbiote? Are those going to be things that, much in the way, I assume the Mystique, the Forge, the Banshee, and the Sage material were setting up the future? Should I be looking to the events of X-Lives as set up for the future as well? And speaking of characters that maybe should have been in one of these minis, Colossus. Mikhail isn't really a beast villain or a Wolverine villain, and trying to have a narrative about Mikhail Rasputin without involving Colossus in any way or Ileana, characters that are very tied to him, it feels a little strange. There's also plenty to be said about the potential connections to the Rasputin family in general that Moira has, whether it's her time serving on Excalibur with Colossus, or it's trying to cure the legacy virus, which claimed the life of a young Ileana. There's so much to be mined from that connection. So I am surprised that they worked so hard to kind of set up this situation and then pivot hard from following through on that. I think the biggest thing I'm walking away from 10 lives and X deaths and life of Wolverine with is the X-Men are in a very different place than they were even a few years ago, where the Hoxpox situation when it first started had limitless potential for storytelling that was going to change and move the line forward. But now we are in a line moved forward place. We are already in motion. And there are so many ideas and stories in play on Krakoa that the potentiality of Krakoa has become so many things to so many different people. And in order to keep that rolling, the stories are becoming more different and more unique and more varied. And as a result, we're seeing things move in and out of and weave in and out of stories that we maybe wouldn't always think they are the smoothest with. Inheriting the Moira story into Wolverine was a, a really interesting thing because while Moira never really fit into any of the main titles, we could have most closely called her a Jonathan Hickman idea. So she sort of went from X-Men to the Wolverine title. And that was not a change people were expecting. For these first few months of 2022, the X office has been focusing on fewer issues with maybe more content that you're not expecting. We've seen Secret X-Men, we've seen Devil's Reign X-Men, as well as a focus on some really interesting Infinity comics. So I'm hoping that this sets the stage for a new way to interact with not just the X-Men, but Wolverine. I think X-Force is going to have a lot of opportunities to grow in the next couple of months out of the pages of this. And I'll be eager to see how that balances out. Now, I don't want to say that there were nothing but criticisms because that does feel like I've been a little more critical of this than maybe I meant to be. It all just started coming out, right? I want to talk about some really great positives. I love Quentin Quire. Quentin Quire is the best. Really fucking glad he wasn't in this. Logan didn't need a kid to take care of throughout this story. And while I personally think that we are in a position where the X family has grown so much that the Wolverine family could really replace Wolverine in a number of his titles which we see Laura doing in the pages of X-Men. But like, I, I probably could have used maybe X-Lives of Dokken, X-Deaths of Laura, or you know, X-Deaths of Dokken, kill Dokken instead. So another really big positive that came out of this story for me is I'm no longer worried about the state of Logan's ongoing narrative. We have had so many threads building up since the beginning of Hoxpox, and that becomes a few too many threads to keep running all at once 
We had Omega Red growing in the background. We had the looming threat of Logan as a broken man. And this is something that I feel this arc definitely addressed. Logan had been making increasingly, I don't want to say foolish decisions, but throughout a lot of X-Force and throughout a lot of Wolverine, we'd commented that we weren't sure why he was trusting certain new characters in his life. And he never seemed to be committing to the fight. He always seemed to be like, oh, I don't want to be this guy anymore. But through these 10 issues of the Infinity comic and through these two five-issue miniseries, I think Wolverine has reorganized his fractured psyche. We had spent so many years cleaning that up and that it felt maybe kind of like a jump back in time that all of a sudden he was like, ah, I don't even know who I am anymore. It's all messed up inside. Yeah, it is all messed up inside, but the goal should be working to repair that. Omega Wolverine coming from the future to say, I never sorted out my problems. I'm going to just kill them in the past instead was a really interesting way to remind us that if Logan doesn't deal with all of the things that he's been shoving down and pretending aren't going to kill him, he's eventually going to find himself in a situation where he has he has nothing but his rage and his violence. So by forcing him to confront that and seeing Krakoa absorb away that creature, I'm hoping that this sort of fractured Logan, I don't know who I am, can be refocused. We talk a lot about who is your Logan and what does he do on this show. And I think for the Krakoan age, I would like it if my Logan got to be someone who was happy and got to be someone who evolves and got to be somebody who looks forward to a bright future, even if it comes with a hard past, because that's really where the X-Men have moved to. Yeah, at the end of the day, the X-Men are all fucked up and nothing can be done about that. But that doesn't mean that they don't get to hope for the future. One of the things that Logan should always represent is the idea that we can do better tomorrow. Logan, of all people, has had far too many chances uh, when you think about it. But that's even part of why it matters. If Logan has had so many chances and the X-Men do keep relying on him, it's because he does keep earning their forgiveness. A character like Moira sought to actively, intentionally wipe out all of mutant kind for her own purposes. Wolverine, while yes, oftentimes a fuck up and frequently does try to kill people, Wolverine's atonement, his apology, his wishing he hadn't, is a huge part of his character narrative. That's what sets apart a Wolverine from a Moira or an Apocalypse or a Mr. Sinister. Logan may feel that what he does is necessary, but he doesn't take pleasure in it. Moira really hit a perverseness where she enjoyed the killing. You know, Wolverine has been a guy who, every time he gets hurt, resurrects. He gets reborn, he comes right back, and he maybe has to spend an hour laying there knitting his life back together on the operating table, but then he gets back in the fight. Moira had a very different kind of coming back from the dead. She would have to live through her life again. Years of being paralyzed as an infant. Years of slowly going to school knowing everything she knows and having awareness but not having the chemicals that match so she can't make the same logical decisions because her brain wouldn't be where it was. She would have her knowledge. It's not the same thing as having the same logical control or the same muscular control or the same strength level. So we saw in this story, Wolverine go from a guy who just keeps killing and just keeps being a weapon, his sword and his gun and his claws and whatever he needs to be and comes right back the next minute so that he can keep fighting and hopefully we're seeing him enter an age of his character where he's a little bit more thoughtful and he thinks a little bit more about the things he does before he rushes in and does them. Conversely, Moira goes from a scientist and somebody whose whole life is about thinking things out and having the slow plan time to becoming somebody who can now, in a resurrected moment, jump back into the fight 
height and do damage as needed. It's so important to consider that this takes her from an intelligence, like she says, you know, she's an intelligence. I mean, it takes her from like being intelligent to being a weapon now as well. That dynamic transformation is going to be one of the things that I walk away from this miniseries with. Moira and Wolverine kind of flipped spaces here. We've talked about how a number of women operate in similar regards to Wolverine. Emma Frost is a Wolverine in that she can be in any title and she can be kind of like a Swiss army diamond knife. Elektra is a Wolverine in that they can both be used as unstoppable killing machines and can operate in magic and in noir and in street level and can work in a team but can also be great loners. They're mysterious. I think Moira McTaggart is now on the level of a Wolverine as well where she's going to be an agent of eternal change and murder and death for the X-Men in a way that they're going to have to confront on a regular basis. Hopefully not for too long, but whatever form we get Moira in in the near future and the far future, I'm grateful that this journey has reached a logical apex within a few years. If this had taken 10 years to get to this place, I'd have been pretty upset because I wouldn't have been happy with this as a 10-year journey, but as a three, four-year journey, I'm okay with it. And I'm grateful to Ben Percy, Federico Vincenti, Joshua Cassara, VCs Corey Pettit, Dijolima, and all of the team that worked on the proper minis, as well as the team that worked on Life of Wolverine, like Jim Zub, Ramon Boxhaver, Tataglia, and VCs Joe Sabino. And from one view of Wolverine's past and future to another, we're going to be taking a look at Wolverine patch number one, a decidedly lighter tale than the material we just looked at. Guys, we love making this show for you every week. It's usually Magic Mondays, X-Men, X-Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays, but sometimes the schedule demands just a little extra X-Men. As always, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember that Wolverine's going to go down to just two or three books a month now for a little while. Enjoy this last segment, and guys, we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new episode of X's for Podcast, the show where we investigate the many aliases of Marvel's mutant magic doers and many other Marvels. That fine. It's fine. We're here to talk about Patch. So I mean there's already plot holes. I'm Nico, and you guys can <laughs> find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. That would make me Raven, aka Dame Red Red. You can find me over on Twitter and Instagram, doing some arts and whatnot. So yeah, come over and start a conversation. And I guess that would make me nathan and you can find me online on uh, twitter and instagram at dazzler aoa where i'll be talking about Monsieur patch all the time <laughs> yeah i am so excited to get to talk about patch it's so silly that i love patch but <laughs> so one of the things that i think we sometimes lose in the magic of comics is the the joy of the silliness of trope right there's something enjoyable about the kind of nobody can tell that clark kent is superman <laughs> because it's just dumb it's so dumb that we kind of have to laugh at it. It's I mean, his chest is that big, no matter what, guys. And so when everybody just looks right at this motherfucker with that hair, and he's like, "No, I'm not that other guy." You can tell because of the eye patch, and everybody just kind of goes, "You're right, I can tell," and it is the eye patch. I love this idea. It's so stupid, and it's so cute, and it's fun. How do you guys feel about Logan as Patch? Okay, so it reminds me of the '97 Justice League movie which is really campy and really awful and really fun at the same time oh sweet god there's like a scene where like it's supposed to be guy gardner but it's really like hal jordan <laughs> he's like talking to his girlfriend and he like walks away and then like he comes back with just the mask on and she's like oh my god you're so hot i love you like that's what <laughs> patches like to me because you know you just take logan out of his wolverine 
you know, and like he must throw on like a little bit like of a jauntier accent. Oh, hey, Bob, I'm gonna have this sake or, or whatever you would some sort of for. Canadian equivalent of French Cambodian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he just throws on a little accent, and everybody's like, "Oh, who is this guy? He's quite the dapper gentleman. He's the same height as Logan and everything, but we don't know where Wolverine went." So instead of being from Ontario, he's from Quebec. Yes, yeah, he's from yeah. Quebec. Then half the time I'm just going, is he about to do a racism? Because he's he's towing that fine line of like 1970s ish James Bond. <laughs> Oh, no. But also, I'm just going, what in the fuck? What is going on? Like, does he actually think he's fooling people with this? Or are people just going, ooh, he must be having one of those days. Okay, well, <laughs> well, okay, we're just we're just going to let him have his day. It's okay. We, that's his vibe. He's expressing himself. And I'm not going to point out the difference because I like living. You know, <laughs> and I love that take on it because when you're faced with an unkillable man and the unkillable <laughs> killable man says you have two choices i'm patch or you get six claws like what do you say to him like do you do you argue like i just my favorite thing in the entire world and i've made this joke way too many times but way before they were a thrup i have always said my absolute favorite role play night is when uh gene is like i'm gonna be the sexy director and <laughs> logan you're going to be the barmaid in distress and Cyclops, you're going to be Patch. And he comes out with the visor on with the patch over it in the suit. And I just think that that is like the pinnacle of you know, sort of like everything that what the is supposed to represent. And I I do love Patch. And Raven, I want to point directly to your comment about it toes that line of racism. And oh, so close. I appreciate that Larry Hama as an Asian man is choosing to tell this story. Yeah. And he tells it very mm -hmm. carefully and he tells it with fine dexterity. And it's one of those situations where if you don't understand everything going into it and how close they come and purposely avoid it, like there were times I was like, uh, this is this is getting close to like a <laughs> Howard Chaykin comic. I'm getting itchy. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Why isn't this an image? What's happening? And so <laughs> I find myself really glad that Larry Hama stayed within like I there's no other way to put it. I really appreciate that he stayed within my white guilt limits because <laughs> you know i'm a proud latin man and i talk about it a lot but like being one form of a protected class or of a minority does not mean you have you know sort of like a magical carte blanche to tell stories of other protected classes and minorities and so like i'm not here to feel okay with any sort of like proprietary story taking that you know me enjoying it feels bad it feels wrong so like i am so grateful that this is being told by larry hama a man with so many years of experience in the industry and you know what i'm glad that i am on my toes about it i'm glad that i'm not like oh it's just the genre let it go right Ugh. i mean the fact that they brought in a character named tiger tiger and yes i've heard of this character before but the fact that they brought in a character named tiger tiger and oh, she's an she asian woman yeah. she, oh, she like totally oh my god i'm just like oh my god oh no this is a tone setter and it's one thing in like big hero six which is such a high hyper sort of fanciful ridiculous take on these sorts of things where the characters names are like wasabi no ginger as a code name <laughs> 
is like meant to be explosively funny. It's turning the genre on its head and it's poking fun at it. This was meant to be taken very seriously. And I'm so glad you mentioned Tiger Tiger because again, that might even be something where her name is just such an acceptable part of comic continuity that I overlook how it's not an acceptable name in many ways. Oh no, they do toe that line really well because a patch tail could easily, easily slip into like a white savior trope. And, and you know, speaking of how carefully Patch stories need to be told, something that I had not realized is Patch has altogether ever had 28 proper appearances. And okay, Patch is an alias of Wolverine. So like, I understand <laughs> that Wolverine has had 17,446 appearances squared. But, you know, Patch as a character with the look and the name has only appeared 28 times. And it's in such an incredible, I, I can't believe I have to say the phrase Marvel Comics presents again this month. This <laughs> doesn't seem fair. I shouldn't have to anymore. But from 1988 to 1990, Patch had 26 appearances. Marvel Comics Presents 9 and 10, Wolverine 2 through 8, 10 through 16, Marvel Comics Presents 38 through 42, one fucking issue of Captain America, Captain America 363. I'll take it. Oh, wow. Right? And then Wolverine 24 through 26 and 31. After that, Patch did not appear in Marvel Comics from 1990 until 2020 when Jed McKay put him in Black Cat 9. After that, he appeared in Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood number two in a story by Chris Claremont. But any other appearance of Patch was a reference and not an actual appearance from the guy. Wait, so you're saying, like, really, that after 1980s, it's like that Black Hat story is the first Patch story? Like, wow, that's kind yeah, of interesting. That really blew my mind when I did the research because I think Patch is one of those things we all like to point to as one of the dumbest things about Wolverine. <laughs> like, I'm first up. I love it. It's stupid, but I love it. It's like, I love Daredevil, but, and I love Stilt Man. And I, I like, if you love Daredevil, you have to understand, like, the significance of Stilt Man as, even when you say, I love Stilt Man and Stilt Man stories are really powerful, you still say, no, look, I understand it's Stilt. You know what hey. I mean? I get it. I feel the same way about Frogman. So yeah, or D Man, or Gail oh, Simone's yeah. Cat Man. Wow, it's a lot of uh, <laughs> low rent men. So um, <laughs> low rent men. Uh, that's that's men most of the time. Yeah, right. So <laughs> I find myself really like just really excited about the prospect of seeing a better version of Patch maybe in this miniseries because it's been enough time and I appreciate the distance. I appreciate the perspective and it'll be cool to see some other version of Wolverine after what we just experienced was the stabbiest 10 issues Wolverine has had in quite some time. It was the stabbiest 10 issues and it was really surprising that we didn't see Patch in x or x I was like, okay, I was expecting a patch story, but no. I think that speaks to the limited use of patch in general. Now, Raven, I, you know, it's an incredibly small list. And like, I don't hear, okay, here's the thing. I think anybody who's like, if you didn't read it, you're not a fan. Like, mm. I think that's a pretty bad way to look at things, right? So whether or not you've ever read a Patch story before, that's not really the context here for me. How do you feel about seeing Patch come out of that very questionable and very seldom used kind of darkness and seeing him updated into now when he's been like a punchline for so long? I had literally never read Patch before. I saw a variant cover with Wolverine and a kid on the front having a conversation about him being Wolverine but no no he's like no I'm Patchbub he's like uh, seriously 
I laughed <laughs> so hard. I had to pick up the comic book. I'm like, this is either going to be an absolute hilarious dumpster fire, or I'm going to be surprised at how good it is. I am surprised. Right? Larry Hama is just such a, a fucking a fucking king. He's such a fucking king, and he's written something like 110 issues of Wolverine. He oh, wow. would write the Wolverine future MC2 spinoff Wild Thing. He would contribute <sighs> to... Uh, wild Thing. I know, right? Oh, the daughter God. of Electra and Logan. Yep. You make my heart sing. <laughs> stab, stab. And, you know, he also has written stuff like Sabretooth. He's written some of the most extensive work on G.I. Joe. He's got an arc of Electra under his belt, as well as appearances on characters like Cable and Gen X. He did a, a pretty significant run. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a better voice for it than Larry Hama. And mm-hmm. I've actually never gotten to talk about Larry Hama with you before, Nathan. I know we've covered Larry on, I want to say, four or five segments at this point. But I feel like you and I have never synced up. Do you have a relationship with Larry Hama's Wolverine and sort of that re-centering of Wolverine as a character of, you know, the 90s? That is my main, like, period of Logan I go to. Like, when before I, like, if I just think of who Logan is, that's, like, that's the era. I go to because you know obviously when you grow up reading that era that's the first era you gravitate to I wouldn't say that's like always the best era but I do like Larry Hama's take on Wolverine probably is like up there with me for the Claremont take and even Percy's getting his own take on it which is becoming consistent enough to like have its own voice so I think it's one of those iconic takes that has a really distinctive voice for Logan. You know and one of those things that this voice tends to include is a strong female character whether it's LCD or it's Jubilee or it's Electra. there was usually a female co-lead that kept the Wolverine book moving at a strong pace and kept it out of being a very single thought focused experience. Now it is, you know, of note to me that there was no grounding female presence in this issue, but I do kind of hope to see an appearance from Jubilee like we got in the X-Men Legends story that he penned earlier this year in issue seven to nine, which saw the return of Sabretooth, Birdie, and Maverick, and it was a lot of fun. But to this story, right? We're here to talk about patch number one, which Marvel proudly presents with writer Larry Hama, Andrea DeVita was penciler, Lebu Underwood on inks, Sebastian Chang on colors, VCs Clayton Cowles on letter, and Jeff Shaw and Edgar Delgado are the main cover artists, but the variant cover artists are a goddamn who's who of Wolverine artists. And I want to start with how unbelievably well they created a visual experience that could slot in into any of the three main eras I could see this going in, either the late 80s, the mid 90s, or the early 2000s, wherever they wanted to drop this in canon, because it doesn't feel like a now story, but wherever they wanted to drop this in canon, the art fits. How did you guys feel about what I felt was very intentionally dated art? I love that for an out-of-continuity story. You know, like, if you think of, like, a cold case, right, you know, they would always, like, have them wear the hair of that era, have them wear the clothes, you know, play a hit song of that era. This feels exactly like one of those types of shows where you're just like really just totally set the scene and maybe I don't need to know exactly where in the Wolverine history this would be although I'm sure we will figure it out as time goes on because you know with Wolverine's supporting cast of characters in Mad Report, which was the most amazingly strong group of women ever like huh I love that it set the tone I love that it set the scene I could basically you know imagine a song on the radio playing like a late late 80s early 90s hit something like that so you think he's parachuting into 99 lift balloons <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
I actually, I really liked the art because, yeah, you're right. It did not feel like, oh, this is a modern story, so I need to figure out where in the astronomically effed up continuity line are we supposed to put this? This is like, okay, this is sometime in his past. And I love the fact that they even used like a, like a comic panel from him from like the 80s. <laughs> With that hair. Oh, God, that hair. I love that hair so much. You know, if I hadn't lost my hair at like 19, I would have wanted my hair to look like that. (laughs) That's a lot of hair gel, Nico. So much product. It looks like the rudder on the backside of a ship. I mean, just just, that widow's beak is so sharp you could cut his wit with it. Well, I actually really want to comment on what he looks like here. There's a certain kind of like, there's a certain uh, handsomeness that people tend to give to Wolverine and John Constantine that you can just scoop that right the fuck up and save it for your Batmans because I like my Wolverine looking a little bit like he got into a fight with an iron. I want my John Constantine to look like he had a bad day under a tire. And that's like, I want the aged wisdom of, oh God, damn he's falling down some stairs on his face (laughs) and andrea devito really captured this wide-nosed wide-faced thick man in logan's face that i feel very few artists capture with an exquisite dexterity like devito captured here i also thought that his nick fury reminds me why every version of nick fury nick fury is delicious oh my god i called him nick fury nick fury (laughs) yeah that's this is problematic because now i love it but um Whether, you know, it's Nick Fury or Nick Fury Jr., this just reminds me that that suit always looks good. Right. Well, you know, anything that's painted on that tightly. So how do you guys feel about this sort of depiction of Wolverine visually? Like, I mean, I also think he looks old here. Like, I just want to go out of my way to say, like, they are really youthening up Logan a lot lately. They're making him pretty, which is something that, like, that used to be a big thing with covers versus interiors when they would have different artists. Like, you would put, like, the Biz, like Simon Bisley, on the cover of a Hellblazer book, and then you would have uh, Camo doing the interiors. And so on the cover, he's shiny and perfect. It's like having Alex Ross on on the covers <laughs> but then having like Igor Cordy on the inside it's just like that's not the same kind of vibe and while I don't have that with this book at all I kind of have that with this visual Wolverine and the Wolverine and the rest of the Marvel Universe and if nothing else I was confused when no one turned into Omega Red <laughs> all I could think is wow they really did make his face look like he jumps himself straight out of planes just yeets himself out of perfectly good planes with no parachutes and lands face first in the jungle yeah but it's still sexy it is (laughs) yes it's that rugged rugged independent fallen on the floor look and i actually appreciate that because he has been through a lot yeah he's sexy like you know like a lumberjack that's been wandering through the woods for months and months and months (laughs) and like fell on his face a whole lot but you know still got it (laughs) that's exactly what it is and you know as a as a proudly pansexual man uh it's so rare that a book has so much equal parts man and woman candy and i just need to comment on i believe her name is Beth. Good oh God. God yes. I, I'm like, wow, this woman could go toe to toe with frenzy. And yeah. like, I, it's just so unusual that we get a dynamically American gladiator looking motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> and that's something I really love as a kid who grew up with the American gladiators. And like, clearly I talk about bodybuilding on the show way too fucking much. And like, I, you know, I'm at the gym every day and like seeing them think of the fact that there's other ways to express a woman being sexy and also powerful right like there's nothing unsexy
sexy about this woman, and yet she's still drawn as this big, brutal powerhouse. And it's just so rare that comics take the time to do that. Women are either allowed to be a size two with double Ds or comically obese. And the idea that we can show a hypermuscular woman who still has physicality about her that indicates an attractiveness is such an important thing to remember when we're creating visual conks. Mm-hmm. For half a second, I thought it might be frenzy because same. Just yeah. like I'm, I'm looking at them braids and I'm like, how did we get frenzy? Uh, oh no, wait, no, frenzy is apparently speaking Russian. And then I took like a second look. I'm like, oh no, that's not frenzy. But damn, I'm loving <laughs> the build. Because yeah, it's so rare we see you know, like really muscular women, you know, who are you know instead of being clothed in next to nothing, they are you know actually have a fully functional outfit on and are still like thick as hell and hot as fuck. So I was like, yeah. oh, and then and you got that little wiry husband that comes in i'm like yeah i'm okay with this i'm okay with this <laughs> we, we we can do this we can we, we can definitely do this yeah Nathan, as someone who champions body diversity in comic books, that had to be like at least notable that it's so different here. I do. I love it. It's like this is the first time I've seen a really good job done of that where a woman in comics can be both sexy and very muscly. I have to say, I mean, she came in looking like a like an AEW wrestler. She's doing a finishing move. She could easily crush me with those thighs. But I mean, yeah. Sorry, what was I saying? <laughs> you were saying crush me, mommy. <laughs> crush Pretty me, much. mommy. Crush me. Well, speaking of... <laughs> of things that I don't know if you caught it, but now I'm wondering if it's going to crush you in a positive way. On digital page 15, there is a line toward the bottom of the page that says the only ones in Madripoor with that sort of disposable income are the Prince and General Koi. Yeah. So as Larry Hama is the guy who did the most work on Karma outside of Chris Claremont for 20 solid years, I was so excited that this might even possibly open the door to that family coming into a story like this mm-hmm. I feel like if Karma showed up in this book it would make this book bang. It looks like you're setting General Koi up to be the main antagonist of the story like if I don't get a good like dose of Shan or even like more Tiger Tiger and you know give me some Lindsay McCabe give me some Jessica Drew like let's bring back that whole Madripoor crew into the story. I love and hate General Koi obviously he's an asshole but you know he's, he's a fun character that he's so comically like he's like super villain who's like oh, I've got to get my money before everybody else dies <laughs> kind of thing brought Tran over to the dark side did that to Shan too because he's like I'll help you find my nieces and nephew if you do all this evil <laughs> shit for me I hope we get to see it I hope we get to see some interactions between her and Patch where she can be like hey Logan you know we all know it's really you we're just like putting it on for you and you know it's one of those things where like I did have a visual thing I love that Larry Hama is like the king of Marvel War comics, right? Like mm-hmm. Garth Ennis can take second place on this one. Laurie Hama, R- Laurie. Wow, like Laurie Strode. Laurie Satan. Yeah, this is uh, Eve Saint Laurie. So, um, <laughs> so Larry Hama wrote. <laughs> I don't even remember what I was saying anymore. So he wrote the most GI <laughs> Joe comics, and he also wrote a ton of Wolverine. So him putting, uh, you know, Wolverine in a jungle situation makes a lot 
lot of sense. That's like a trench situation. He knows. I did find the suit incongruously humorous at times in the jungle. That yeah. was how do a you little... keep it white? I that know. was. I'm not even kidding. That was at somehow the problem for. I don't care if it's unstable <laughs> molecules. You can't keep that shit white. Right. He <laughs> fell from a tree. He rubbed. He rubbed on branches and leaves on the way down. That shit would be half green by now. He literally hit every branch on the way down. Like. <laughs> And it's still white. I've stained my car seats with water from a water (laughs) bottle. So like, I don't even understand. But one thing that I definitely did understand as I continued to read this story was that this is a type of decompression that I sort of feel Marvel isn't playing with right now very much. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've seen in the last 20 years, and I kind of source it to the 2005 TV season was a significant shift in the way we absorb art into a much more middle ground of soap opera and serialized identities. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that lost Desperate Housewives, Veronica Mars, Grey's Anatomy season where suddenly everything had 10 minutes that connected every episode together, Mm -hmm. but also still kind of had their own things going on frequently. And now, of course, media had that well beforehand and has had it since and has evolved it in many ways. But one of the things that went, that bled over into comics. We sort of saw the end of seasons of comics and got back into the, oh, comics never die. Comics never end. Yeah. <laughs> kind of vibe. But this has a very open, closed feel to it in a way that I don't feel like a lot of Marvel miniseries have had lately. Even something like Curse of the Man thing, which we discussed, I felt mm. from the beginning had a purpose of at least resetting the board. This feels very much like pull up a chair. We're going to tell you a tale. And I really, I'm like not coming for Larry Hama and I, because I love him and I've said how much I love him throughout this story but i would have much rather laura as patch for a miniseries Whoa. i just did i just did five issues of x lives and x deaths and i just did 10 issues of life of wolverine and if you want to give me Dokken as tiger tiger and <laughs> laura as patch i'm in if you want to give me Dokken as yukio and laura as patch and they don't bang i'm in <laughs> if like but like i do feel as though because this does have such a classic feel not dated not old not outdated but classic feel in some ways, I maybe need the narrative to be pushed forward in a dynamic and interesting way. And for me, Laura as Patch would have been that thing. How do you guys feel about the idea of returning to this modus in an era that is very much about a different delivery system? Like, was this issue a really good read? Was it a fun time? Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be something that's going to be a necessary story to be told? Is it going to really change any of the characters that are involved in some sort of way? You know, I don't think it can do that. I mean, it has to be an out of continuity tale because Nick Fury yeah. and General Koi are, are mentioned. So, like, you know, they have they're in totally different places right now. So it has to be an out of continuity tale. You know, it Marvel has done a lot of that. And I've seen some really well constructed stories come out. And I've seen some really well crafted, you know, some beautiful art with all of these tales. But I always have to wonder how necessary was it? Because by virtue of it being a past story, you really can't do anything super mind blowing that will like totally change the character is it worth it at that point i completely disagree okay because with wolverine he has a very (laughs) he's got some of the best plot armor as it were in that he's lived so much and been through so much and been tormented so much that he's often forgotten pieces of his past and we've seen in recent years where he's worked a lot harder on reconciling a lot of his past within himself so 
we could see this as a a bit of a coming to Jesus moment where it's him realizing some of his past mistakes or some of his past actions had ramifications that he still sees to this very day. So even if this is, say, a, a story from, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago in its time setting, it could still have ramifications for modern day Wolverine if he came to realize that some of those actions were uh, either his beginning journey to becoming a better person or something that he did that has very much either halted or slowed his progress on becoming a better person. And then, you know, maybe he feels like it's something he needs to rectify. So there could be really wonderful ramifications in the modern era later on. But I'm just taking it very much as the exceedingly fun romp of how just dude, seriously, everybody knows who you are. But also, okay, this is gonna be interesting. I want to see the story. Like no matter what, I want to see the story. And that's honestly all I was looking for in this comic book is just make me want to actually hear your story to the end. I agree. In the same day, I'll watch Fritz Lang's Metropolis and American Gladiators, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. So sometimes it's okay to just have silly fun. And I do want to see where this goes. I want to see the big strong lady beat up Logan a little bit more. That's really hot. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I just, I trust Larry Hama. He's never done me wrong. So I'm uh, excited to see where this goes. Give me that supporting cast. If this is set in that early Wolverine period from like 1 to 31, I need to see all those characters. Like if anybody's out there has not read like Wolverine 1 to 31, like read it. It's so good. It's so well done. Maybe some stuff doesn't hold up as well now, but like it was such a cool departure for the characters that they brought in. Like you get like probably the best development of Karma. I think, Nico, you said this outside of Chris Claremont. Although Vita is doing amazing work with Karma. Mm. So oh I, God, yeah. I would say like those three things are like huge for the Karma development. Lindsay McCabe is such a fun character. Like this is like where Jessica Drew started appearing and she was fucking amazing. Tiger Tiger is so fun. I keep even get Mr. Fix It. Like that's a great era. So like... <laughs> here I am just selling that era of Wolverine this story no matter when it's set is evoking that feel for me and I do love it even though I have my own certain problems with stories set in the past it was a really fun read and I can't wait to see more mm-hmm. and I would just like to thank the artist for drawing Beth's braids correctly because we've had a lot of braid drawing as of late and sometimes especially if it's on a woman of color aka a black woman they are not drawn well like there have been some glaringly bad examples this on the other hand she is wearing the correct type of braids for her hair she is wearing the correct type of braids for her ethnic background and she's they are represented correctly they are drawn really well and i know that seems like a tiny detail but that tiny detail can actually change very much how the story is perceived how you take something in and kind of how you interpret the character. So to have not only a very large muscular woman who is drawn well, but also the hair is done really well. I I love attention to even minor details because it really shows the artists and the people working together in the group are like on the same page and really doing due diligence. And I I love that. It brings me back. So I'm 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 loving this book. I'm definitely coming back for more. 